0: Say amen if you're there. Praise God. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, Paul the apostle speaking here, it pleased him to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, Semicolon. immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into where? Arabia. Arabia. And returned again into Damascus. I think last week I said Syria. Paul went to Arabia. We need to make that clear. And the reason why it's pretty cool is because we're talking about Arabia where Mount Sinai was. So remember, Paul was a what? What was his? He was a Pharisee. And not only was he a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was well-educated. He had a, in today's terminology, he had a Harvard law degree in law. He sat under the best teachers and um, he was schooled in the law of the Lord. And so when he met Jesus. Immediately, he went to Arabia and Galatians um, also says it speaks of Mount Sinai. So a lot of Bible resources um, declare that Paul actually went to Mount Sinai and that's where he tarried with the Lord. And when the Lord gave him um, revelation, that that's where we got it. I find that quite peculiar that the same place that the Lord revealed His law to Moses, that God revealed His grace to the Apostle Paul. Amen? And so, um, and so I just wanted to make that clear. And once again, you've heard me say before that Paul, he was under tremendous uh, accusation about his credentials. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, when Jesus knocked me off my horse, and commissioned me, he said, I did not confer with flesh and blood. But he went straight to the secret place to spend time with Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And, um, and that's a good lesson for us all. Praise God. You know, it's, it's okay. Um, you know, the saying is, is that God calls, men confirm. Amen. And that's what the ordination service is. Ordination doesn't make you called. There are many people in the ministry that are ordained, but boy, they're not called. And there are many people in the ministry that are called and they're not ordained. All right. And that's just the reality. God calls. So Paul didn't go up to the headquarters there and get the apostles approval on his ministry. What was his... Proof of ministry. It wasn't a certificate. He tells us it was the power of God that confirmed the word with signs and wonders. What was Paul's credentials? People were healed. People were filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. The power of God was the credentials that God gave to Paul. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And three years later, it says, then he went down to Jerusalem and his motive for going down to Jerusalem was not to get their approval, but to make sure that the work that he had done in Galatia was not in vain or it wasn't a waste of time. He wanted to make sure that those that came after him, that they were all on the same page. And so he just wanted to get clarification. Amen. So, um, So I just wanted to clear that up because it wasn't Syria. Where did Paul go? Arabia, Arabia, praise God. And in Arabia, Paul got the revelation of the second coming of the Lord and the catching away of the saints, which he will talk about in this chapter, chapter four of Thessalonians. Let's go there together. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. How many love Jesus tonight? Awesome. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1, in Thessalonians. Which Thessalonians? The first first letter. How many letters were written? Two. Two. All right. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So in other words, Paul has said, hey, we've set the example. Paul laid the example for us out in chapter 3. We studied that out last week. So he's saying, you see the example that we've set, how to walk, how to please But it's our prayer that you go above and beyond how we've set the example. Amen. And every good teacher, I think one of the signs of a great teacher is they want the student to excel. They want them to go above and beyond they ever went. I've heard pastors say often, my ceiling should be your platform. Amen. And that's the way it should go. And that's that's Bible teaching, and that's a a good mark. So that's what Paul is saying here. We've set the mark, but we want you to go further, amen? And in verse 2, he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. The commandments by the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification that you would abstain from fornication and that every one of you would know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Okay? So he said, look, you know the commandments that we gave to you by Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. commandments. We're not saved by commandments, but it is a sure good way to prove our love. Amen? As a matter of fact, keeping the commandments is a response to our salvation. It's our way of saying, I love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Praise the Lord. Now, I like what he says here in verse 3, because he just gets right out and says it on Main Street. This is the will of God. Yep. People want to have a little debate on whether or not it's okay to have intimate relationships before marriage, whether it's the will of God or not, it's right here in black and white. He says, now this is the will of God, even for our sanctification. All right, now, remember Romans taught us justification. We're justified by what? By faith, all right? Sanctification is our our holiness, or are the way that we live a separated lifestyle yeah. from the world. Right. And there's a reason why God wants us to remain separated. Amen. So that we stand out. Yeah. Yeah. So that people take note. Remember what Jesus said. You do not light a candle and hide it under a basket. You light a candle and you set it up high on the mantelpiece so that it gives light for all to see in the room. Amen. Amen. And that's what the church is supposed to be. So I know, especially for our young folks and for us, and even with our colleagues at work or whatever, it's tough to stay out of the lottery pools. It's hard to claim all of the income. It's hard to do different things that the world is doing that we have a conviction about but we may not want to do it because you know we're going to get persecuted or we're going to get called a you know a holy roller or we're going to get made fun of saying that you know uh what's the what they what they always say uh you're a do-gooder, or you're a brown-noser, or you're a holier-than-thou, or whatever, a holier-than-thou, or a Bible basher. You know, all these different terms the world has for a saint that is just trying to live a sanctified life. Amen? I mean, at the end of the day, we're just trying to do what Jesus admonished us to do, and what Paul has asked us to do. And there's a reason for it, so that we can be a people that is peculiar, the Bible says, that is separated. That people take note. Amen. Amen. So remember the three, uh, the three, the three stages of the Christian life: justification, yep. sanctification, and then glorification. All right, glorification is what's going to happen here in the middle of this chapter here when we all receive our new bodies. Praise God. How many over 40 say amen to that? Amen. I can't wait. Praise God. You know, there's no back pain in heaven. Praise the Lord. There's no joint aches in heaven. Hallelujah. It doesn't exist. Praise God. Now. Have you been there? <laughs> huh? Have I been there? Well, I know it's a glorified body. I'm just, I'm just, I just read the word and believe what it says. I'm just pushing you Push it. Now, look at this here in chapter we We're still on verse three here. It says, even your sanctification. And the one thing that he says that is most important about our sanctification is that we abstain from fornication. Amen. All right. Now we're all adults here. We got Jules. Jules, how old are you? You're a teenager. You're fit for this study tonight because we're going to talk a little bit about some of the the things that fornication gets into. Um, He says that we abstain from fornication. Did you know that when when the church first met at Jerusalem, when the Gentiles were starting to come in, there was a lot of questions. What should they do? How should they act? They're not, they don't, they're not raised under Jewish tradition. They don't follow the Mosaic law. What? How should a Gentile Christian act in society? So at the Council of Jerusalem, which was the first church council in history, they decided that they'd write a letter. And this was found in Acts. And basically, they didn't put a whole lot of rules on them. They just basically said, abstain from idols, abstain from fornication, don't eat Don't eat, drink the blood, and don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols. And so that's the only thing, four things that they gave them. And basically, if you trace back those four things that they told them, they basically said, don't attend the heathen festivals. Because that's where there's prostitution. That's where they're worshiping false gods. That's where idols are. That's, you know, that's basically they in a nutshell, listed the things that, wow, there's no way I can go to that festival over there because they're going to end up doing this. So in in a really clever way, the Holy Spirit, without putting a bunch of bondage and yoke on them, just gave them a couple of things that would keep them out of pagan worship. Amen? So fornication was a huge thing. And if you want a good list... Of what fornication is Leviticus chapter 18 is a good place to start. All right. So let's go over there real fast to Leviticus back to the Old Testament. And there's a really concise list of what is right and wrong when it comes to a pure sexual relationship. And like I said, we're all adults in here tonight. We can talk a little bit about um, sexual relationships tonight And, um, you know, it's in the Bible, and we're going to kind of just see a little bit about what the Word of God says about it. Leviticus chapter 18, say amen if you're there. And I'm not going to read it verse for verse, but what I'm going to do is we're just going to, I'm sorry? Leviticus chapter 18, yep. And what we'll do is we'll just kind of summarize What each where the verses are here, so in Leviticus Leviticus chapter eighteen, starting at verse six, it says, "None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him." In other words, a family member to uncover their nakedness, or in other words, to have relationship with them. For I am the Lord, and then he begins to list all the different. Relationships that a person should abstain from when it comes to intimacy, there. All right? In modern day language, we would call that ancestral relationships, wouldn't we? So he lists all the different relationships there, all the way uh, we've got uh, father and wife, stepmother, sister and brother. Uh, Verse 10 is talking about grandchildren. Verse 11, half sister, brothers, aunts and uncles, 12 through 14. Any in laws, 15 and 16, um, women and her daughters and her grandchildren, a wife, sister, or brother. Okay, so that's all to do with family, all the way up to verse 18. All right? And then when we get into verse 19, um, he talks about um, it says in verse 19. Also, you shall not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness or her menstrual cycle. All right. So we're not to you know, you're not to have relationships during that time of the month. All right. That's forbidden. And believe it or not, the pagans actually thought that was the best time because they are obsessed with blood. And so it was a real abomination to the Lord to try to do that. All right, and um, that's about as far as we need to go there. Now, verse 20 talks about adultery. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife or defile thyself with her, all right? So you're not to take another man's wife or or a woman to take another woman's husband, all right? Verse 21 talks about idolatry, and this is where we get a powerful verse which is in protest to our abortion um, that happens in this country. Verse 21, it says, And you shall not let any of your seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shall you profane the name of thy God, for I am the Lord. So what they used to do is the temple prostitutes, if they became pregnant, they would let the... The pregnancy come to term, they would have the baby and they would take the baby and they would bring it to the altar, which was a fire altar, and they would lay the baby on the altar and they would burn the baby alive to the god Moloch. It was disgusting. And now you wonder why the Lord sent Joshua and the Israelites into Canaan to stomp out this race. Because this is the kind of stuff they were doing, all right? And this was still going on, apparently. There were still human sacrifices going on, even in the time of Jesus' day. And you know what? There's still human sacrifices going on in our day. Because people are not following the sexual purity laws that the Bible has laid out. Women are getting pregnant when they shouldn't be getting pregnant. They don't have marriage as a covenant in that relationship. And a lot of times, they're going to the abortion clinics because they just don't know what to do and society is giving them an answer that is a lie amen it's not the right answer and it's interesting that this one verse is nestled right in the laws of all the sexual rules that God has laid out for his children i just right in the middle he puts that one one verse 21 there which really doesn't have anything to do with the sexual laws that he's talking about But that is what they used to do with the children when they did not follow the rules and they got pregnant. Quick question. You know, sweetheart, I'm not going to get into that topic tonight because we'll get off. We'll get off discussion here. (laughs) But the lesson's not about abortion tonight. Praise God. Verse 22, it says, And you shall not lie with mankind as with a womankind, for it is an abomination. So that's where we get our sexual uh, laws about homosexuality. Verse 23 talks about laws about humans lying with animals. It's amazing that the Lord even has to put that in Scripture, but he does. He does, and it's there. All right, then verse 24 talks about some other things that, um, that they weren't supposed to do. And so that's kind of a bit. So basically, you've got family members, right? You got family members. You got other people's wives or husbands or someone that you're not married to. All right. You all. And then you have uh, man with man, woman with woman and man or woman with 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 animals. All right. And so that's kind of the classification there. So anything that is in that list there, when you see the word fornication in the New Testament, it is it is basically wrapping up all of those things there and putting them into that one word fornication. Okay, and that's what that means. There's another place in Exodus where it talks about that a man should not lure a young handmaiden who's not engaged to somebody. All right. So in other words, they're talking about, you know, you know, young kids. Yeah, exactly. And um, and one of the things that I'm going to say here tonight, especially since we got, you know, our young Jules in the room. And I don't know whether you guys have ever heard this before, but this is what I teach my children. And this is what I'm going to teach my boys when they grow up. And I'd really like you to pass this message on to the young men that you know in your life. But a lot of people think that it is the woman's responsibility to keep her virginity. That it's her job. It is not the woman's responsibility to honor her purity. It is the man's job to to honor her purity. And we're going to see that here in the next couple of scriptures. Look in verse 4. It says now. Every one of you, verse 4, we're back in Thessalonians. Oh, okay. All right, I'll wait for you to get there. Verse 4. Is that the first chapter? Uh, chapter 4. 1 yeah. Thessalonians 4 4. Everybody there? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Now, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessels in sanctification and what? honor, okay? So it's not just about being a goody two-shoes, it's actually about being honorable. There's a certain way that God has created the human race to act. They were created, according to Genesis, they were created in His image, amen? And when He lays out a code of, of how we should be, it's in other words, that's how he is. Doesn't the New Testament teach, be ye holy for I am holy. Verse five. Now here's how you walk in honor and sanctification, not in the lust of concupiscence. What a King James word that is. (laughs) Raise your hand if you know what concupiscence means. My wife would know (laughs) concupiscence. Concupiscence is just a big giant English word that means an aggressive desire for something forbidden. All right, An aggressive desire for something forbidden. Romans taught us that when you are told not to do something, the desire for it is aroused, isn't it? Amen? The best way to keep my kids out of the food that I want to eat is not to tell them, don't eat that. That's just the way it is. The less we say... The less commands that we put on the kids, don't do this, don't do that. Man, the easier life is. Because the minute you tell them not to do it, they're like, it arouses something in them. I want to do it. Paul talked about that in chapter 7, didn't he, of Romans. Now, look at this. This is how we walk in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. In other words, this is how the Gentiles, the Greek culture and the Roman culture was. They were known for their sexual impurity. They, you know, it was in the temples. It was in the house parties. They were known for this. Verse six, and that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Now we're not talking about financial fraud here. What we're talking about is taking something sexually that does not belong to you. Now, here's the reality. If a man has relationships with another woman but does not marry her, eventually, somewhere along that line, hopefully, that woman is going to marry a man, isn't she? And what has happened is, is that man who took that woman has defrauded her future husband for receiving something that was rightfully his because he's the one that is going to marry her. And the one who marries the woman should be the rightful receiver of a woman's virginity. And so what a man should walk in soberness towards his fellow man and the future of that man. So you may think, oh yeah, concupiscence says I want that but honor says it's not mine to take because she actually belongs to another in the future and women we know sometimes they like a guy they're vulnerable because they got feelings and emotions and they and they see a man and they want the man to love them so what they do a lot of times is they'll give that precious gift to that person, thinking that maybe it would close the deal or that it might bring them closer together. But what the man usually does, unfortunately, is he takes it. But what the man should say is, no, I'm sorry, sweetheart, that is not mine to take. And he should, in her vulnerability and her emotional instability, should protect her and say, no, that's not mine to take. And that's how men should operate in honor and sanctification. Especially in the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. Especially in the church. I have seen so many young couples that fall for the lie of, oh, we're going to get married. So let's just go ahead and, you know, let's just go ahead and have relationships. What? That is a lie. Man, that is the biggest con that the enemy brings to destroy young couples' lives. No, what the man had to say is, look, he had to just go and put a ring on the finger and make a covenant to the church and to God and marry the woman and then do what they need to do. Because Paul said, look, it is better to marry than to burn, is what his advice was. Burn with what? Well, first, burn with lust. But also maybe burn with hell fire because the Bible says that these type of people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. So that's my little take on men. It's the man's responsibility. And so if you know a young man and see, they think in my generation, we just thought if a woman was given it, we were taking it. And no one taught me as a young man that it was my responsibility to protect that precious gift that a woman has to give to her husband. I wish somebody would have sat me down and told me, Jeremy, you are dishonoring your fellow man to do that. Praise God. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, you defraud your brother. You defraud. You know what it means to defraud? Take something away that doesn't belong to you. Amen. We have laws in this country for fraud. Now, he says later on, because the Lord, look at this. This is heavy duty stuff here. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us unto uncleanness but he has called us to holiness. And the reason why Paul here is making such a big deal about fornication is because in the Gentile society, and we know in our world, sex is everywhere. You know, it's everywhere. And this uncontrolled uh, desire, this uncontrolled concupiscence, is what brought the Roman and Greek empires down. This lifestyle of no sexual restraint is what brought that great society to its knees. It corrupted. What does adultery do to a marriage? It divides, doesn't it? It divides. Well, what do you think sexual immorality in a society does? It divides. It brings it down. And thank God the church is what as, it was like a, a bastion that kept back, you know, all of this stuff throughout church history. Amen. But we're coming into the last days now where you look. I saw with, on NBC the other night, this was like it, it was on a, like an evening show. And it was full on at nine o'clock at night on NBC. I mean the show full on it showed a person a, two, a man and a woman having sexual relationships on TV on a major new on a major network at nine o'clock at night. I we're flipping through the t- I was like, what the heck is going on here? I couldn't believe it. You know, we're coming down. In America, I mean, you know. The judgment, I heard one preacher say, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to repent for Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Yeah. I think uh, Wilkinson out of, uh, David Wilkinson out of New York said that, didn't he? Yeah. In other words, what's he saying there? Man, America, we are, uh, uh, not us, but our society in America is, is falling and they're one of the things that the main thing I think that is bringing America down is it's, it's, what's the word when you can't get satisfied? You just got to have more, but you're never satisfied. More, but you're never satisfied. They just have an addiction for sex. Just like with food, everything. Praise God! All right, so there we go. Moving on to verse eight now. That's what I was looking for. What'd you say? That's the word I was looking at, an insatiable appetite, insatiable. It cannot be quenched. No matter how much it takes, it is still never satisfied. And that is what has become in our culture. And as a church, and now most, I look around this room and most of us are elders now. Most of us are seniors And we have a responsibility to raise our young people in the admonishment of the Lord of what the scriptures teach about fornication. And that's why tonight I felt like it was just relevant to just go back to the basics and cover it verse by verse on what we're actually talking about here tonight. Amen? And this is the thing that we need to, when your young people are coming up to you, you need to break open your Bible and you need to say, look at what Leviticus says. This is what it says here. You want to you be in the rapture? You want to go with Jesus when he comes back for his church? This is how he says to walk. Praise God. Now, verse 8. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but he despises who? God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. All right? So, if you're going to Be challenged for what you're saying out of the word of God. Don't take offense and don't take it personal. Because they're not despising you. Who are they despising? They're despising God. And the church is called to be a two-edged sword. You know, we're called to preach truth because truth will bring people to salvation. But also, if they reject the truth, then God is justified in his judgment when they meet him one day at the great white throne judgment. Because they're not going to be able to say, Lord, I didn't know this was what I was supposed to do. And he'll flip the screen. He'll roll the PowerPoint and he'll say, you remember back on uh, April 16th, 2019? When I sent that man, my servant, with that fuzzy gray beard and that fisherman's cap, and he was telling you about Jesus Christ would save you from your sins and from the wrath to come, and you said, what did you say? Oh, I don't remember what I said, Lord. Oh, I know what you said. Look, it says right here. You said, I don't believe in God, and I don't need a Savior. You see? So our testimony is a two-edged sword. It's one of salvation and it brings one of judgment. Amen. And that's why we have this mandate to speak the truth. Praise God. And if you feel rejection, if you feel society, you know, what does it say? They're despising you. Just take it as, Hey, they despised the Lord Jesus, didn't they? And it is, we are appointed. He said earlier, we're appointed to affliction. If somebody spits in your face because you're trying to tell them the truth, just say, thanks, Lord. Check that box off. I was appointed to that. (coughs) Hallelujah. Give glory to God and just move on down the road. Hallelujah. Now, he says there, now verse 9, but as touching brotherly love, all right, brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now, he didn't need to spend a whole lot of time. Obviously, they had the love of God. What does Romans teach us? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by where? By who? The Holy Ghost. When you get born again and you're filled with the Spirit, the love of God comes into our hearts. Amen? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Now, verse 10, And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we... But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So it'd be like saying, you know, you guys have a lot of love in Claremont County. We've heard all the things you do in Claremont County here. But, you know, we'd like to see you go further. We'd like to see you go to the state of Ohio and to the United States and to the world. Amen. Get out of our own little territories and spread it out. Praise God. Now, verse 11. So we moved on from relationships, and now he's going to talk about working. And we, we spent some time on this, I think, back a couple, couple weeks ago. And um, so we'll just kind of, uh, we'll, we'll kind of do a little review here. Now, verse 11, he says, Now I and you should study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with whose hands? your own hands as we commanded you. Let's just break that down a minute. Study yourselves to be quiet. Why do we have to study to be quiet? Because we're all, at least I know I am, I'm always quick to speak. It's easy to speak out, to react to a situation, but it takes study, perseverance. The word there. For study is to be ambitious, pursue eagerly, strive, aspire to like a prize. In other words, when you see strife in a situation, you know, we should be quiet. All right. What does it mean to be quiet? Just means to be quiet. You know, Proverbs lets us in on a little secret. The smartest guy, the person who looks like they're the smartest guy in the room is the person who says the least. Have you ever noticed that? So if you don't think you know much, just be quiet. <laughs> You'll look like the smartest cat in the room. It's a good secret, man. It's a good secret. Yeah. Be quiet. Don't be a busybody in everybody else's business. What's it say? Do whose business? Your own business. The reason why there's busybodies in the church is because they don't have any of their own business, they need to get to work. A lot of problems with our young men and our young women is they are idle. The Bible says Proverbs is full of teachings that the idleness of hands is what causes problems. The best thing a person could do is get to work and be focused on your own business, amen, your own success. Even if that means just going out and digging ditches, make that the best ditch that has ever been dug I mean, make it so straight and perfect. When people walk by, they say, that is the best ditch I ever seen in my life. I'm so glad I did not fall into it. <laughs> Gorgeous ditch, that is. You know, and be proud of your work. Yep. You know, that's the, you, proud of the work of your own hands. He says, work with your own hands as we commanded you. When Paul came to this place, remember we talked about this. He set an example to them. He had every right as an apostle to receive his, to receive his, his support from them who he was teaching. But he knew the slack culture that was here in this city. And he said, you know what? I got to show these dudes that hard work is good for the soul. So he got his tools, he got his men, and he would work in the the morning, in the afternoon, and he would break out the Bible and teach them in the evening. And that's how he did it, for three weeks. And so that's what he's telling them. You need to work. Why do we have drug addiction so rampant in our society? Because a society has told them it's okay not to work. It's okay not to work. You put somebody to work, and they stay true to the job, they're not going to have time to take drugs. They're not going to want to take drugs because they're not going to be able to do the what? The work. (laughs) What's that? Injury? Yes. Yeah, that's a whole nother story, wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah. because they feel like there's no hope. Yeah. They yeah. Have no hope. They don't know Jesus and they have no hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. They need Jesus. Most. They, need Jesus. they need Jesus. But I'm telling you, Lee, when I was a young man coming off of drugs and I went to the Good Samaritan Inn program, the thing that cured me the most was learning how to be proud of the work of my hands. Yeah, Jesus was my Savior, and I was born again, but I still had a work ethic problem. And it was working at the ranch, doing landscaping, digging out roots, building walls, sowing grass, working in the construction business, framing houses, becoming a person that was proud of the work of my hands. That it also helped me after. You know, you can believe in Jesus and you can have hope. And that's for the spirit, man. But the soul still needs something to do with his hands. Amen. Amen. So there's both. We need the spiritual solution and we need the physical solution. And they both are a, are a, like a dovetail to build a perfect house. Praise God. Do I have another question over here, Barry? Hopelessness. Yep. That's I, how you get lost it, in addictions and stuff. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Of, yep. Uh, what you're, that's what you're saying. I agree. Absolutely. Now, verse twelve. Now also not only study to be quiet, do the work of your own hands, stay and mind your own business, but he also says, verse twelve, that you would walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have that you may lack for nothing. So what is he talking about? Walk honestly towards them that are without. In other words, those that are outside the church, be honest. Walk in integrity when it comes to our dealings with society out there. You know what I mean? Because our witness is important, isn't it? And you can all testify, you know, the first thing that people want to do is they want to give a good reason why they don't go to church because so-and-so, I, I paid so-and-so to come and pave this driveway and they said they went down to CLC and they never came back. I'm never going to church. There are a bunch of frauds down there. Yeah. You know? And that's rea- the reality is they're not coming to church because they love sin. And, you know, that's what it says. The, the pleasures of sin. Jesus taught that, didn't he? When he was speaking to Nicodemus. But... Nevertheless, that doesn't take the responsibility off us as a church to do all things upright before them outside the church. Amen. Amen. It's very important. Paul was adamant about this. You know, as we read, I just I love the way this man took the gospel and the church so serious in his example of how he would deal in practical matters. All right. So. Praise God. So there we are. We're done with some of that. And we're going into verse 13, which is where my favorite part of of the whole letter is. It says, now look at this verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep. And that you would sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe in Jesus, for if we believe that Jesus died and what? Rose. Rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. All right. Now, we've got, um, I want to show share a little something with you if I can. And we'll close with this and we'll pick up the rapture um, study tomorrow next week because we will never. But I want to. Uh, can you guys see that? Okay. Nope, it's not on there yet, is it? All right, hold on a minute. Let me see if I can get it. All right. working on. I'm working on it. Give me, give me some, give me some stay. All right. All right. So. All right, so we saw, last, we saw the other day what eschatology meant because that's what we're going to be studying in the next two or three weeks here. It says, eschatology is Christian eschatology, is a major branch of study within the Christian theology from the two Greek words meaning last and the study of or the study of in things, whether the end of an individual's life or the end of an age or the end of the world and the nature of the kingdom of God. All right. Three major divisions in this um, subject are centered around the second coming of Jesus Christ in the millennium at a time where Jesus will rule and reign over the nations for a thousand years. So in other words, when you think about the study of the last days, it basically there are three classifications. All right. And this is what they are. A millennial, post millennial, and pre millennial, and do not let these fancy terms or whatever you know get, get your tongue twisted. We'll go over them. A millennial, post millennial, and pre millennial. All right. In other words, what that means is a millennial believes that the kingdom of God just goes throughout human history, and the, the, the millennial there's not an actual thousand year millennial reign of Christ, that Christ is reigning now in the earth through his church. Well, we know that he is reigning in our lives, but he doesn't have the physical rule of reigning that he promised David through the prophet Nathan, that he said, your sons will sit on a physical throne. Amen. So this is, um, we'll get to who believes that here in a minute. We got post-millennial that believes we'll go through a 1,000 years, and then when God comes to set up a new heaven and a new earth, that's when Jesus will reign. And then we've got the premillennial, which means that Jesus will come back, and then he will reign for 1,000 years, okay? All right. Anybody, can, can you guess which one we're in? Yeah, All right. Now, <laughs> to understand this, the, how these guys over here think like this, there's a fancy word called preterism. And what preterism is, it's just a fancy word that means that they believe that all of the things in the book of Revelation happened in the first century of the church. And that we are no longer in the book of Revelation. That it's not, it wasn't a future book, that it was a, it was a, a book that said of, talked about things that happened in the first hundred years of church history. And so that's how they can kind of get around what Revelation is talking about, amen? And um, so that's, that's how they can buy into that doctrine because they believe that. So the next one, did I skip one here? Let's see, here we go. millennial, All right, so now, Post-millennial is what we say. We've, we've got that. They believe Jesus Christ is coming back at the end of the thousand-year reign. Then we've got premillennial. This is where it gets a little confusing now because now that third category is broken up into three classes. we got post-trib, mid-trib, and pre-trib. Okay? Post-trib, mid-trib, and pre-trib. And this is what Pentecostals have been arguing over for hundreds of years. All right? So that's our three. That's the three divisions. For this third group over here, all right? Now, most of your, what I would call, denominations of liturgy, and when I say that, I'm talking about those that have prayer books like the Catholics, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, those type of mainstream denominations, Catholicism, fall into that first category, okay? And that's why when you go and try to talk to these people about Jesus Christ and prophecy and the book of Revelation, they just kind of do this number. They like, they don't even know what you're talking about. Because as far as they're concerned, their job is that the church should set up its kingdom for Jesus Christ here on earth. And this is why we get into these things like the, um, the Crusades, you know, in the, in the dark, dark Ages, because they literally thought they were establishing the kingdom of God over there in Palestine, and they were physically supposed to go and wipe out who they thought were God's enemies, okay? And so you can kind of see how we've talked about how bad doctrine can cause a lot of problems, amen? Yeah. you got to get your doctrine straight. Yeah. All right, so then the last group, this is, this is uh, you know, post-millennials. These guys are wacko. We don't talk about them too much. <laughs> All right. So this group over here is what's known as the fundamentalist. In the 1950s, some of you might have heard of the fundamentalism background. You know, that's what most people, evangelicals, you know, people like us come come into this category. Anybody that's under, when you say, what is your doctrine? And you say, I'm of the fundamentalist doctrine. They're going to kind of know what you're talking about. In other words, you believe in the virgin birth. Amen. You believe that Jesus is deity. You believe, you know, in the second coming of Christ. You know, these type of things are what are known as fundamentalists. All right. So you say, um, so how did all this start? Well, if you look at the and what we're talking about here is we're talking about Jesus Christ coming back. We're talking about when he'll come, when he'll take the church out all right, and when will he will reign physically on earth. Now, you can see that everybody in this camp tends to allegorize the scriptures, especially when it comes to prophecy and last day's teaching. Most of these people want to allegorize. Do you know what I mean by allegorize? Does anybody know what allegory means? In other words, it's a, it's, it's not a, that's not actually going to happen. It's a symbol of something happening. It's a, it's a type shadow. Okay. Of something. Now the Bible has those. That's very clear, but let me tell you the book of revelation and the Jesus Christ coming back to physically reign on earth is not an allegory. All right. And then we also have, then what we do is we tend to take the Bible literal. We take the Bible literally. If it says that, that It says what it says, all right? I believe what it says, all right? So where did these crazy uh, amillennialists come? And why you say, Jeremy, why am I spending a lot of time on this? Because this is coming back into the church big time right now. There are a lot of people that teach. And hey, we need justice movements. We need people to fix society. Society is broken and they need solutions. But the major solution is the return of Jesus Christ and he is going to fix government we're not going to fix government by becoming a super church and then all of a sudden the super church expanding and taking over the world and establishing the kingdom that's all millennialism. and it's back because every bad doctrine is like a is like a uh, an old record it always comes back around doesn't it you know the styles come back around You know, brown suits and yellow ties are coming back. You watch. (laughs) All right. Now, these guys started this mess. A couple of early church fathers, Oregon. How many have heard of Augustine? Okay. All y'all know him. They begin to allegorize the scriptures, especially when the church blended into government. They didn't have the guts to tell Caesar, hey, this is a throne you have, but it's a temporary throne. There's going to be a guy named Jesus Christ who's going to come and kick you off that throne. They couldn't have, when they saw that in Revelation, what did they do? They didn't have to kind of spiritualize the scriptures, say that that is a symbol of us as a church ruling and reigning and, you know, taking over the earth. So these are the guys that are responsible for it. I know they said a lot of good things in their day, but they were bang off it, as they say in good old Yorkshire, when it comes to, comes to the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So a little bit of history Allegorization of the scripture, um, Augustine created amillennialism. It's the Roman Catholics position on last days teaching. And this is the problem that the reformers and the um, Luther and all his bunch, they did not address this issue. They just took it right along with them. They had, they had faith saved by faith. They got it right. They had, you know, they got Romans right. They got Revelation wrong, okay? And they ended up taking the same beliefs that the Catholic Church had and brought it straight into theirs. That's why your Lutherans, your United Reform, your Presbyterian, which is just Scottish Reform, um, you know, your Episcopalian, which is Church of England, which came out of the Reform, all of these denominations, these major denominations, which we call liturgy denominations, all take a view of all millennialism. And there's a couple of big churches here in Cincinnati, Ohio who believe in good things, who are doing great things, but they believe in this. And you got to watch out for it, all right? So that's some of the things, just a little bit of background that I wanted to give you guys before we get into um, talking about the last days in the next couple of weeks. Amen? Praise God. Any questions?